Thank you, and good morning, and happy new year. Uh, I did say, didn't I, last Sunday that we begin a series talking about uh, investigating fasting, prayer and fasting, but uh, before we do that, we just need a reminder to keep the main thing, the main thing. I think it was, was it Reverend Canon J. John? Uh, he's like the Church of England's main evangelist. Um, you can't miss him, really, if you do churchy things. And um, I think it was J. John who said the church needs to keep the main thing, the main thing. Um, what is the main thing? A bit more than that. I mean, that's a Sunday school answer, isn't it? Jesus, he's the answer to every question. <laughs> All right. Now, We'll, we'll discuss then. We'll discuss. All right. So as a Christian, have you ever come to the revelation at some point that God's priorities might not be the same as your priorities? Yeah, pretty much every day. Yeah, every day. That can be quite challenging, can't it, when you suddenly get a revelation that maybe what you're asking or seeking or wanting might not be God's priority? It doesn't always happen, but it can happen, can it? But for a non-Christian to hear that God's priorities might not be the same as their priorities, what they think God should be prioritizing in their lives or for the world, when a non-Christian hears that God's priorities might be different to them, it can seem like an unscalable barrier between them and God. It's, it, they, they take offence. People take offence when they hear that God may be concerned about something else other than what they're concerned about. And it seems to them so offensive that they couldn't scale it. If only they realised that this unscalable barrier of offence, you can get to God by going underneath, humbling yourself, by realising that Jesus, like you said, Jesus is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And by humbling yourself and accepting that, you actually get under that offense to God. So uh, what is the main thing and what is God's number one priority? <laughs> okay, some of that great commission, is it? Someone like that? We, we're going, okay. Let's love the Lord. Okay. All right, we've got the greatest commandment, and then we've got the greatest commission. Okay. Have we got a PowerPoint up there, please? Now, Simon drew my attention to the problem of my PowerPoint, and that is that unless you're in the front few rows, you can't really read it. Um, so we'll use that as a teaching point. Yeah, you get the message. And you need your Bibles in front of you, don't you? If you can't read on the screen, you need your Bibles in front of you or your phones. My preference would be a proper paper Bible that you can make notes in and then go home and it's still there and you you know where it is in the page. So may you, a New Year's resolution if you do do those, is uh, bring your Bible to church and uh, have it in front of you. Um, but don't worry, next time I will make the writing bigger for you as well. Uh, what is God's priority in Luke chapter 13? Starting at verse 1. 
We're not going to read it aloud today together. We're just going to go through it together a little bit. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now at the time, Jesus was talking to the crowd. And it seems like some of the crowd wanted to interject with a comment about the horrific and unfair murders of Galilean worshippers who were brutally killed by Roman soldiers as they offered their sacrifices to God. Now quite often... When a Christian talks about God, someone will quickly bring up the subject of suffering. Have you experienced that? Where was God when this awful thing happened? This God that you love and apparently he's so good. Where was he when this thing happened? If God is so good, then why did he take my wife through cancer? It's difficult, isn't it? And these are valid questions. But when clung to and used as ways to shape a warped opinion of God, they become a massive barrier of offence between that person and God. Okay, verse 2. They pointed out this awful tragedy. Verse 2. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? When something atrocious happens to a group of people or an area, it's human instinct to often ponder whether somehow they deserved it. What did they do to deserve this? Let's read verse 2 again. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent you too will all perish. Now, to perish, the Greek word used there to perish is apolymai. And one of the translations of apolymai means to be given over to eternal misery in hell. So the crowd want to know about Jesus' thoughts and his sympathies towards this awful thing that happened to the Galileans. And Jesus turns around and says, if you don't repent, you too will perish. You'll die and you'll suffer eternal misery in hell. Not the sympathetic answer the the instigators were looking for, I'm guessing. But now it's Jesus' turn to mention another tragedy. Verse 4. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Now Jesus could have just as easily said, the Grenfell Tower. What about the Grenfell Tower? Or the bus crash that happened on Seven Oaks Road a couple of years ago? Or October the 7th in Israel recently and a massacre that happened there? You think, sorry, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So what is Jesus saying? Awful things happen. There's no rhyme or reason to death often, mostly. Good or bad people, death happens. 
Bad deaths happen to good people and vice versa. The people were looking at death as the ultimate catastrophe. We usually consider death as the worst thing that could happen to someone. But Jesus is saying there is something far worse than death. And that is to perish. To die physically while still in your sin and to spend eternity misery in hell. The alternative is for you not to perish, but to die in Christ and spend eternity with joy everlasting in heaven and then later when heaven comes to earth and the earth is renewed. Here, Jesus' heart for people, all people, everyone dies, but repent so that you won't perish. I actually said this to someone this week. I've been thinking about saying it, and I thought, people need to hear it, but could you actually say it to someone? This, I met a guy, well, most Wednesday mornings, uh, Julian from Hope Church, a leader from Hope Church, and myself, we go out doing an hour and a bit of evangelism, street evangelism, just approaching people and talking to them about salvation. And met a guy, young, young guy, well, younger than me, in his mid-30s, late-30s, I think, uh, sadly in a wheelchair, just lost his leg in July because of di- type 1 diabetes. And life had been really cruel to him. And he was in a bad place. And he had this massive offence barrier you know, where was God when I was suffering this and that through childhood? And, and eventually, the only way I could get through was to basically say, and this is the thought that I had whether I would share this with someone, if you think this life is bad, wait till you get to hell. Sounds awful, doesn't it? But if someone's got this massive offense and they just can't get over how God is in their mind because how cruel, cruelly they've been treated... Sometimes they need a wake-up call and think, you think this life is hell? You think this life is bad? Wait to experience eternal misery in hell. You might get their attention. And this guy, uh, we might see him next week. You never know. He, I think he's going to Hope Church this morning, and he said he'd come and uh, experience us as well. But he ended up very emotional, very repentant after we explained the good news of why Jesus did come and die for his sins, that he might be saved from that, and that Jesus can and will act in this life. And you will see God moving in ways that you never experienced before in this life. But you will no longer perish, which is even worse. He actually prayed a prayer of salvation, this guy. And it was a work of the Holy Spirit. If you think this life is bad and God is unfair... You wait till you die, unless you repent and turn to Jesus. Jesus was saying, you are still alive. You still have the opportunity not to perish. Repent and not perish. It's John 3.16, isn't it? You could probably read this one, although you don't need to read this next slide because you know it off by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have everlasting life. People's priorities tend to be about our current existence and our circumstances, but where might God's priority lie? Our eternity. Not that he isn't intimate and intricate in our lives right now. Jesus made that abundantly apparent. Even the hairs in our head are numbered. He knows our thoughts. And if you're a believer for any length of time, you'll experience the intimacy and the intricacy of God in every aspect of your life. He cares. He knows. But he is more interested in people's eternity. That's his priority, that people should repent and not perish. And that is the main thing. And the church needs to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, anyone recognize this chap? Have you ever heard of Frank Jenner? Ever heard of Frank Jenner? Yes, someone's saying yes. Oh, Karen's heard of Frank. No, sorry, that Diane? Diane's heard of Frank Jenner. Okay. Should we test you, Diane? Are you just saying you've, no, you've heard of him? A- anything? Something to do with medicine. Okay, there might be more than one Frank Jenner then. <laughs> Carolyn, you've heard of Frank Jenner too? Okay. Oh, that's Edward Jenner, Mike's saying. Okay. Let's find out who Frank Jenner is, shall we? Okay. Yeah, 1903 to 1977. His name is Frank Jenner, born in 1903 in Southampton, England. Hampshire. And I think you'll find his story incredibly encouraging and challenging. Now, for us, the discovery of this remarkable story begins here. Here we go. Lansdowne Baptist Church. Has anyone ever been to Lansdowne Baptist Church? You know where it is? Hmm? It's in Bournemouth. Yeah, a bit further down the coast in Bournemouth, Lansdowne Baptist Church. Okay? Well, this was the place in Lansdowne Baptist Church where 70 years ago the then pastor of the church, Francis Dixon, there we go, next slide. There we go, Francis Dixon was the pastor 70 years ago and he began to piece together an amazing tapestry of what God was weaving together through one man on the other side of the world. Okay. In the summer of 1952, Pastor Francis Dixon and his youth minister, Peter Culver, we get a picture of Peter. There we go. There's Peter, the youth minister. They invited another youth leader called Noel Stanton. Now, these are all in their older years, but there's Noel Stanton. And they called Pastor Francis Dixon and youth leader um, Peter, called Noel Stanton to lead their youth weekend at Lansdowne Baptist Church. 
Now, during the weekend, Noel shared his testimony of how he became a Christian. And it was during World War II. Remember, this is in the 50s. Okay? During World War II, Noel had been conscripted into the British Royal Navy and spent some time moored at Sydney Harbour in Australia. Have we got any Australians here? No? I think we might have Australia on Zoom. Martin sometimes uh, zooms in from Australia. And Noel shared this. I was in the Royal Navy. I was walking down George Street in Sydney, Australia, and went, and out of nowhere stepped a gentleman, and he said to me, Excuse me, sir, could I ask you a question? I hope that it won't offend you, but if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? The Bible says they'll either be in heaven or hell. Would you think about that, please? Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. And the man left, Noel said. He said, I'd never been confronted with that question. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I got back to England and met someone who took me to a mission, and that's where I became a Christian. And then Noel Stanton started to uh, minister to others and lead them to Christ. Now, who do you think might have been the man who had asked Noel that short but powerful question? Yep, it was Frank Jenner. But what was Frank Jenner, born and raised in England, in South, where was it? Hampshire, wasn't it, somewhere? Southampton. What was he doing to, witnessing to strangers in Australia? Okay, should we find out? Well, according to Frank's brother, Frank was a bit of a naughty boy. And at the age of 12, during World War I, he was sent to work abroad a training ship for misbehaving boys. Mm. When Frank was 14, the ship sailed from Southampton to Cape Town, South Africa. Have we got anyone from South Africa here? Yeah. So... One on the way, while the ship was docked at a port in West Africa, a tetsy fly bit Frank and infected him with sleeping sickness. Yeah, do you know the proper word for it? I was going to pronounce it. Trip, trip. Yes, tripe, tripo. Exactly. Yes. Sleeping sickness, as it's also known. Okay. He subsequently, this is age 14, he subsequently entered a 15-day coma, but eventually recovered. From this point on, he suffered from an excessive daytime sleepiness and was eventually diagnosed with narcolepsy, which prevented him from ever being able to drive a car. What did we learn last year about Christ's power being made perfect in our weaknesses? Yeah? doesn't matter what circumstances, whether it's in our body or our circumstances, where we feel weak. God's power can be made perfect, can't it? God's grace is sufficient to work in us and through us. So, could God, could God use Frank, do you reckon? Yeah? A naughty boy? Narcolepsy? 
After some time, Frank joined the Royal Navy, but he deserted in New York. Any Americans here? May not yet. <laughs> Ex-American now. Okay. Yeah, he joined the Royal Navy, but he actually deserted in New York. Can God use someone with narcolepsy who was a naughty boy and a deserter? Yeah. He soon joined the United States Navy. It's during this time that he learned how to gamble. And unfortunately, he soon developed a gambling problem. He became particularly attached to the game of craps. He started to keep a rabbit's foot in the upper left pocket of his shirt and would rub the, the rabbit's foot with his left hand while he rode, rolled the dice with his right hand. Because of this rabbit's foot, his shipmates began to call him Bugs, rabbit, no, bones. Bones, apparently. I suppose the foot's got bones in it, doesn't it? I don't know, but uh, there we go. His name was Bones, a nickname he kept for the rest of his army career, or his navy career. God, could God use a naughty boy, narcolepsy, deserter, gambler, superstitious? Could he? When he was 24, his work with the United States Navy involved going to Australia, and there he deserted again. Three times now, this time in Melbourne. There he met Charlie Peters, who invited him to his home to have a meal with his family, including Jessie, Charlie's 23-year-old daughter. And guess what happened? They fell in love, and a year later, Frank married Jessie on the 6th of July, 1929. They continued to live in Melbourne, after their wedding, and Frank joined the Royal Australian Navy. <laughs> Did he desert that Navy too? Yep, yeah, no, okay. No. In 1937, he was legally discharged from the Navy, buying his way out but not receiving a pension. In 1939, on the onset, with the onset of World War II, Frank was recalled to active duty. But because of his narcolepsy, he was given shore duties in Sydney. After the war, he left the Navy and became a janitor for IBM, the computer company. Could God use a superstitious, rabbit's foot rubbing, gambling janitor with narcolepsy? Yeah, of course. It was a few years before the World War in 1937 that Frank encountered a group of men from the Glanton Exclusive Brethren. Any brethren here? Any ex-brethren? No. Standing in front, they were, the brethren were standing in front of the National Australia Bank on Collins Street. One of the men was engaging in open-air preaching. Frank interrupted the man to say he would listen to the man's good news provided that he was allowed to share some of good news of his own first. And what good news do you think Frank wanted to share with them, with the man who was preaching? Well, the man agreed. So right there on the pavement, Frank taught the group of brethren how to pray craps. <laughs> <laughs> and 
they joined in. One of the brethren invited Jenna into his home for tea and told him about the gospel. Frank put his trust in Jesus Christ that day, aged 35. And when he went home, told his wife Jessie, she was a sinner bound to hell and therefore in need of salvation. (laughs) Worse than that, he didn't get any tea. Worse than that, his wife thought he'd gone insane. And added to his previous excessive gambling, she actually left him there and then. But eventually she saw the remarkable change in Frank and got saved herself and came back to him. Frank was so grateful to God for his own salvation and transformation that he vowed to God that he would endeavour to speak about Jesus Christ to at least ten people each day. And it was during World War II that Noel Stanton had been one of them. Remember, he was the youth leader. We got him on. Yep, there we go. During World War II, Noel Stanton had been one of them, and he found himself walking down George Street when Frank popped out. But the amazing thing was, was as Noel Stanton spoke at the youth conference at Lansdowne Baptist Church nearly a decade later, after he met Frank, Francis Dixon, the pastor, here we go, listening to Noel's story, turned to his youth minister, Peter Culver, and said, he's telling your testimony. He's telling these kids that he was in the army and met this guy who bumped, jumped out and said the you know, question to him. Isn't it your testimony? You see, Peter Culver had also served in the British Navy. And he'd also spent time docked in Sydney. And he too had an experience where a stranger had popped out in front of him and said something along the lines of, young man, if you were to die tonight, where would you be, heaven or hell? Now this led Peter to seek out answers from Christians he knew. And he got born again soon after meeting Frank Jenner and eventually became a youth minister and had a very fruitful ministry. And guess who had approached him? Of course, it was Frank Jenner. Wow. Two people coming to faith because of a brief encounter with Frank Jenner. And not just coming to faith, they were leading others, young people to faith too, and sharing the gospel themselves. So, not long afterwards, go back to the next slide, please, sorry. Not long afterwards, Pastor Frank Francis Dixon was asked by the Keswick Convention to carry out a preaching tour in Australia. Isn't it funny how things work out? Francis hears about these two testimonies which happened in Australia, and then he is asked to go on a preaching tour of Australia. God incidents? Apparently Francis was a very gifted preacher, teacher. Lansdowne Baptist Church had grown from about 50 people to full capacity of 650 people in one year. Whoa. During his Australian tour, I think, I think he's passed away now, so you can't invite him here as your next pastor, by the way. 
During his Australian tour, the very first church Francis preached at was in Adelaide. During his talk, Pastor Francis decided to share the story of the two testimonies of the people converted by this mystery man in Sydney. As he shared, their host, Murray Wilkes, who they were staying with, jumped up excited and said that he too was another. (laughs) At the time, Corporal Murray Wilkes had been in a hurry to catch his tram on George Street when a voice behind him called, Hey, wait! Murray stopped and turned around to look at the stranger in front of him who asked, Soldier, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Would it be heaven or hell? I hope I'd go to heaven, replied Murray. Hoping isn't good enough, said the stranger. Murray explained that his stranger's question had exposed a raw nerve in his life. Although he was a keen, good-loving, good, sorry, good-living, church-going married man, he also knew he was a hypocrite who had never faced the question of eternal destiny. Two weeks later, Murray knelt in the army barracks and gave his life to Christ. This was now three people Francis had heard about. Pastor Francis continued his tour, and when preaching at a big Methodist church in Perth, he shared the stories again, now three people. Afterwards, a young man came up to him and told him that he too had been in the Navy and he had visited George Street and he had become a Christian after meeting a stranger with his compelling question. When Pastor Dixon finally arrived in Sydney, he was eager to find out more about this urban missionary and asked a local Christian worker, Alec Gilchrist, if he'd heard of him. Alec knew Frank well and took Francis Dixon to a humble little house where he was introduced to Frank Jenner. As Francis related the story of the four young servicemen who had come to know Christ through his simple question, Frank began to weep. I've never heard that anyone I had spoken to had gone on for the Lord. Some made the decision when I talked to them, but I never knew any more than that. Frank Jenner had carried out this work for 16 years by then, and this was the first time he'd heard of any lasting results. Over the next few years, Pastor Francis Dixon preached around the world, and he told the story of Frank Jenner from time to time. And from time to time, people came to him saying they too had been arrested and saved by the stranger with his startling question. Now back home in the UK, preaching in the Lake District, another one of Frank's converts revealed himself to Pastor Francis and said that he too was now winning souls for Christ. In 1957, in India, at a missionary convention, Pastor Francis Dixon gets around quite a bit, doesn't he? He met an Indian missionary who years earlier had visited Sydney and being confronted by Frank's question. And she had subsequently received Christ and eventually gone on to Christian ministry. In 1961, in Jamaica, during the last evening of a week-long missionary conference, a tall Australian man approached Frank and said, I'm another. In America, Pastor Francis shared about the man of George Street, and another person stood and shared that he too had come to Christ as a result of Frank's Jenner's 
arresting question. Later back in the UK, Pastor Francis and his wife attended the golden wedding anniversary celebration of Mr. and Mrs. Fred Bradbury, who was the UK secretary of Gideon's Bible Society. Also in attendance was Mr. Pat Zondervan of Zondervan Publishing, Christian Books in Grand Rapids. Pat Zondervan bounded up to Pastor Dixon and said, I found another. By that he meant Pat had been preaching, Pat Zondervan had been preaching in the church in America and felt led to share Pastor Dixon's findings. And someone in the service had come forward and introduced themselves as someone else who had come to faith through Frank's question. It's impossible to know how many lives were touched by that one-line sermon. It's, pre- it's been estimated that over the years, Frank probably talked to more than 100,000 people. Frank would usually finish work at 2 p.m. as a janitor and then head to his favourite spot in George Street. On Saturday nights during the war, Jenna would also invite groups of sailors to his home for a service consisting of some hymns and a short sermon. Frank Jenner is recorded as saying, Before I knew Jesus, I lived the wild life of a sailor and had become addicted to gambling. Then in 1937, I met my saviour and for the first time in my life was transformed. With the addiction to gambling gone forever and in gratitude for my second chance at life, I pledge to serve God to the best of my ability. Each day I aim, sorry, each day my aim was to speak to 10 people about Jesus and I did so for 28 years until Parkinson's disease took its toll. In wartime and in peace, good times and bad, I continued with the work that I promised to do. And where he had previously kept his rabbit's foot in his top left pocket. Do you know what Frank kept under his, or in his upper left pocket instead? Tracks, Christian gospel tracks that he often gave out to the people he met. Welcome back. Is it gone? Frank also kept a card in his pocket with Philippians 4.13 on it in order to give himself courage in evangelizing. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now the, the question Frank asked each person became known as the Frank Jenner question. Frank's daughter recalls that she would watch her father approach people and say, excuse me, mate, do you mind if I ask you a question? If you died within 24 hours, where would you be in eternity, heaven or hell? She recalls that some would respond something like, heaven, I guess, or heaven, I hope. And Frank would respond with something along the lines of, on what authority do you have for that? And they would often begin with or respond by, because I'm a good person. And Frank would reply, do you know the Lord's Prayer? And they would begin, our Father. And Frank would say, stop right there. Is he your Father? 
Do you know him as father? Have you claimed him as your father? What right do you have to call God your father? But there is a way, Frank would tell them. And he explained the way to them. Dave Roston, another Sydney evangelist and good friends with Frank Jenner. He was more of a street preacher. And one day, Dave attempted to do what Frank did. Pop out and say, excuse me, I've got a question. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And the first time that this street preacher decided to do what Frank Jenner did, he got punched in the stomach. (laughs) Maybe because he startled the person. So he decided that Frank's approach wasn't actually his approach. Now, we're not all called to witness Frank's way. But we are called to witness in our way. 99% of us need to up our game when it comes to evangelizing. For the average Christian, if you're waiting to feel more eager before you make an effort, you'll be no further on and feeling no further eager five years' time. If you're waiting for it to get easier, you'll still be waiting next year. It never gets easy putting yourself out there. It really doesn't. As you know, I, I attempted to do street evangelism every, well, most days during my three months sabbatical before the summer. And it doesn't get any easier. You have to push yourself every day. You might get more experienced. You might feel more competent. But actually, it doesn't get any easier. Whether it's the first person, the hundredth person, you still feel as if you need to encourage yourself. And you'd rather actually walk away than engage. The fear of rejection is just as present with the hundredth person as it is with the first person. You need to just push through that and get over that. We're not all called to witness Frank's way, but we're all called to witness in some way. What is your way? What is your way? What's your main way? There's all sorts of ways, isn't there? But what is your main way? Frank's was at least 10 people a day mostly by asking them that simple yet explosive question. Have you had that conversation with the Holy Spirit? What is my way and what do you want me to do and how often? What is your goal and what's your way? Can you remember a quote from Benjamin Franklin? By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Concerning sharing our faith, the Bible tells us to always be prepared, which is 1 Peter 3.15. Let's not keeping it off, putting it off. When you next can, put some serious prayerful thought into your own preparation for evangelism. 2024, people are going to need it more than ever. How are you prepared for evangelism? What is your goal? His was 10 a day. What's your main way of doing it? Jesus can use you anyway, but what's your main way that you are prepared for? Maynard has written his testimony. 
to share with his neighbours and strangers. Simon's main way is by carrying the cross. It's not the only way, but it's his main way. Marie's way is often talking to strangers on buses and then offering to pray for them or for their friends who then say, it worked. What we prayed for actually happened. What is your main way and what are you prepared for? Very quickly, I can't share, I was going to share a testimony from my time going out. But one of the ways that is very easy is I've stood in Orpington High Street and you can give out 30 tracts in 30 minutes, 30 Christian tracts. You can give out 30 of those in 30 minutes, one a minute, roughly. Some minutes you won't give out any, and then one minute you'll give out three or four in a minute. Okay? I've got a box of tracks here that you can grab some for yourself and take away. That's one way of always being prepared to share the gospel. You might stuff it up. I often do. But if you hand them a tract and it's already written down and someone's spent a lot of time writing this and preparing this, they can go away and read it. So that's one way. If you've just got a tract in your handbag, in your coat pocket, in your wallet, you're prepared, aren't you? Okay? So take at least one tract with you before you go home today. They'll be here in the front. There's some Why Jesus booklets. What I thought of doing when I went out with the cross is that the people that I really engage with, they get a Why Jesus booklet as well as a tract. I'm not going to give them away because they're a quid each or something, so I'm not going to give them away to everyone. Only those that I think are going to read it and make a difference. And I gave them about two away every day. That's two conversations that I thought were going to go somewhere other than just, um, uh, just a discussion there and then. So there's some Why Jesus booklets. If you think there's someone that you know that could do with one of those, take one of those as well. Take a couple with you, but only if you know you're going to use them. Okay? Uh, I'll share more another time. Okay. So just to let you know, the tracks and the Why Jesus booklets are here. The tracks are very simple. They've got our address, the church's address, on the back as well. There is a typo that you can read for yourself and find out where it is, but I'm not going to send all 2,000 back and say, can you do them again? Because that would cost them money. All right. So take some tracks, as many as you feel that you will use, and there'll be plenty more. So if you want to go down to Hauben High Street and hand out 30 in half an hour, that's 30 people that have got the gospel. They might read it. Might not, but they might. That's, that's someone, just like Frank Jenner, you don't know what's going to happen to them, what God is going to work in their hearts, do you? But that's 30 people you reach for Christ in half an hour, possibly. Possibly. Or, if you don't go, it's zero, isn't it? But we all need to be prepared. So have that conversation with God when you get home. God, what is my main way? And what should I be aiming for? And how can I do this? Because we all need to get involved in evangelism like Frank Jenner. Because that is keeping the main thing, the main thing. All right. Thank you.